The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9, our text verses are 1 through 14. I'm not going to read all those verses we have before, and so you can just keep your Bible open and we'll refer to a few of them as we look at tonight's message. But this is a, an account of the high priest's work on the Day of Atonement, and these verses show that the work of Christ in making atonement is a greater work than that was done by the high priest in making animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. The Day of Atonement was the day of the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat as the high priest went behind the veil in the tabernacle. Later, of course, that would be the temple. And his activities were a temporary covering for the sins of Israel. As we know, nothing can take away our sins but the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the offering that the priest made in the Old Testament was just a temporary covering for the sins of the people until that perfect sacrifice was made when Jesus came. Now, in the first two messages, I explained parts of the tabernacle. We talked a little bit about the arrangement of the furnishings and especially the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that went above the Ark. And this portion of Scripture deals with that very briefly as the author moves on to discuss the superior work of Christ. But our purpose is to slow this thing down just a little bit so we can discuss the Old Testament priests and how he was a type of Christ and he went about the business of making atonement. And his chief work on this day was to get behind that veil of the tabernacle and there to take the blood, the blood of the sacrifice and to sprinkle it. And so he did that once each year in September of each year. He went into the second compartment of the tabernacle. Now, if you look at verse number seven in this ninth chapter, it says, but into the second, that is into this second compartment, the holiest of holies, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Before the priest went in, there were preparations that must be made, and that's where we started our outline. We started with number one, the approach for worship. And that included that the priest would change out of his opulent garments and he would change into the simple white robes that were worn by uh, the common ordinary priest. And he took a censer in his hand and he burned incense in that censer. And that was to make a smoke in the holy of holies that would, that would shroud him from the brightness of the glory of God that was seen in the Shekinah. He also had a bowl of blood with him. That's what we were talking about, getting the blood behind the veil. That's the offering of the blood of the goat. That's part of the scapegoat offering that you read about in Leviticus chapter 16. But you'll notice in verse number 12 of this text, he talks about two different animals. He speaks of the blood of goats and calves. And this is because he went into the Holy of Holies twice on that one day, at least twice, some say more, but at least twice he went in, and the first time he went with the blood of a bull. 
And that was to make atonement for his own sins. Then he would take in the blood of the goat the next time. And that was for the sins of the people. And that is what made atonement for the nation. And to enter this, this holy place, the priest had to, most holy place, he had to push aside that veil that separated the two compartments. And that veil, the scripture says, is a symbol of the flesh of Jesus Christ. And that veil tells us that the only way today that we can come to God is to go through Jesus Christ, to go through the body of Christ. So that's what we notice uh, as letter A in our outline, that we are to approach God through the body of Christ. He had a body that was prepared. Uh, He became human flesh that he might live with us. In Bethlehem, he was born. He was the incarnate God given a body so that he could die. God is a spirit. Spirits don't die. Uh, Death is the domain of the physical person. And so Jesus had to have flesh to suffer and die. And this veil was a symbol symbol of his flesh. Then secondly, we, we said that we must approach God through the blood of Christ. The blood of the goat is a type of the blood of Christ. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so as the priest offered the blood, he pictured... Uh, Christ must die, he must pour out his blood in satisfaction to God. That blood is a symbol of death, and only the death of Christ could perfectly satisfy God forever. So these symbols that we see, the priest's dress, his, his, the veil, the entrance with the blood, all of these are necessary as the proper approach to worship God. Well, then we moved on uh, to a discussion. Number two is the attitude of worship. I want to talk a little bit about the attitude of worship. And most people understand the word attitude uh, to be your frame of mind. What would be your frame of mind as you come to worship the Lord? And there is a, a, a certain frame of mind that we need. There is a sense of deep unworthiness that we must have when we come before God. There is a humility that's required. There is reverence before we come to God. But that's not attitude as I mean it here in this particular point I I took on a different took a different take with this word to give it the meaning of position the position before God the attitude I, I gave you this example last week that the attitude of an airplane is its position in respect to the horizon and the direction that the pilot is traveling now I didn't want you to misunderstand that illustration because you might think that an, a, a, an airplane that has a bad attitude is going to crash. Well, that would be true, but that's not the way that we're applying it here. That doesn't have an application. But rather, the attitude that I'm concerned with here is the position of these two cherubim that are made to go on the mercy seat, that stand on each end of the mercy seat, and their, their, their position with respect to the place where atonement is made, the attitude that they have as they stand here, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, to you this evening. They were made to look down on the mercy seat that's over the Ark of the Covenant. And I'd just like to talk a little bit about these cherubs that are just a fascinating part of the construction of the the, uh, mercy seat that goes on top of the Ark of the Covenant. In verse number 3 of this ninth chapter, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, Wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Those are the three things that are 
inside of the Ark of Covenant. That's, uh, that's the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod, and the tables of stone. Then verse number 5, And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now the author here in Hebrews does not stop here to offer an explanation of why these cherubs are made on top of the mercy seat. That's not his purpose. The details in the mercy seat is not what he's after here. He assumed that Hebrew Christians would already understand this, that they would be acquainted with the Old Testament, and this really doesn't need an explanation at this point. But most of us are at Hebrews, if any of us are, we're not all familiar with what went on in the Old Testament. And so we need to go to the Old Testament to read about this and see what God had them do. So we're going to do that. Let's go to the book of Exodus and uh, we'll find where these cherubim are discussed. Beginning in the 25th chapter of Exodus, then going on to chapter 30, there's this long section of instructions for the construction of the furnishings of the tabernacle. There's information here about the courtyard, about the boards that made up the superstructure. Uh, there's the coverings that go over those boards, and those are things that we're going to speak, uh, speak of in just a few weeks from now. But in the 25th chapter of Exodus, the ark and the mercy seat are the first up because these are the most significant for worship. And over the mercy seat, there are these two angelic creatures. These are cherubim that are made of pure, solid gold. And their attitude is to look down on the place of atonement. Now, you, you can observe our picture uh, if we put that up. And we'll look at this for just a few minutes as we read verses 18 through 20. So you can keep that one eye on that and one eye on your Bible. Exodus 25, verse 18. Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Now in our picture there, the mercy seat is the flat part at the base where these cherubim stand and around the perimeter of that uh, you can see that there's what's called uh, in this text a crown uh, a crown of gold a border of gold that goes around in verse 11 and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without shalt thou overlay it and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about the ark itself was wood that's covered over with gold. But the mercy seat and these cherubim and the crown are all pure gold. Just solid gold. There isn't any wood in the construction. Now, we, we understand that wood represents uh, the humanity of Christ, while gold represents his deity. And solid gold represents pure divinity. And we're not talking about here divinity as it's, as it's uh, juxtaposed to humanity, but rather divinity in relationship to righteousness. The righteousness of God is pure and holy and it's above all. Then we, we would also note that the cherubim are not wood overlaid with gold as the Ark of the Covenant was because there is no counterpart for that. 
Cherubim don't have a human counterpart, so you wouldn't have any wood. They have to be made of solid gold because they represent a, a supernatural beings. So the mercy seat of solid gold and the crown round about this are all emblematic of God's throne. And these cherubim, as they look down, are as they are in God's throne room where there are angelic creatures that attend our Lord God. And that's part of the significance of the cherubim. The place where God speaks to his people is from the holiness and the righteousness of his throne. And the attitude of these mercy seat is to look, uh, of these cherubim rather, is to look down on the mercy seat, which is an indication of the great amazement of what takes place here in making atonement for sin. And I would remind you of what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 12, where in the last part of that verse, he said that angels desire to investigate the mysteries of the salvation of Christ. Now, in his commentary on this, Albert Barnes wrote, The object of this reference to the angels is the same as to that, uh, uh, to that of the prophets. It is to impress on Christians a sense of the value of that gospel which they had received and to show them the greatness of their privileges in being made partakers of it. It had excited the deepest interest among those most holy men on earth and even among the inhabitants of the skies. They were enjoying the full revelation of what even the angels had desired more fully to understand and to comprehend which they had employed their great powers of investigation, the great truths respecting the sufferings of Christ, the glory which would follow, and the nature and effects of the gospel. In all the events pertaining to the redemption of a world, they felt a deep interest. So the attitude of the cherubim looking down is that there is nothing as amazing, nothing as wonderful and interesting as what Christ would do for man in redemption. And our, the point here is that angels, in their association with God and their companionship with God and their superior knowledge of God because they're with God, if the angels don't understand all of this, then you can be sure we are never going to understand all the mysteries of salvation and what our God has done for us, the motivations that God had and all of that that goes with it. We are incapable of understanding it all. And so we approach the mysteries of salvation with much less certainty than many people do. But at the same time, we shouldn't be ignorant of those things that we can know, of those things that are told us in the Word of God that God has seen fit to reveal and I think that it's just a shame that there are so many Christians that are disinterested in finding out more about God. And you can just plug that into the discussion we had this morning in the forum class. Why do we have two services on Sunday? Well, you could just boil it down to this. We want to know more about God. We just want to find out more. And all that we can know, we should know. And this is why we spend our time studying the Word of God and trying to find these things out. So why did God have these cherubim in the Holy of Holies? Well, my first answer would be because they're supernatural. The supernatural can't be lost in boxes and things that are made and incense and altars and bread and curtains and candlesticks. No, we've always got to remember that in the work of salvation, there is something supernatural that happens. You can't do this on your own. This is not the work of man. This is supernatural work that can only be done by God. 
And when you think about what God has done, then you just have to wonder, who are we to stand in the presence of God? Who are we even to be here tonight to even talk about such things that are so high and holy? Only by the grace of God can we know any of this and we're enabled to be here. Henry Sotow wrote, The mercy seat and cherubim, being all of one piece, represents, it is believed, Christ as the one who holds all the glorious power of God associated with mercy and in and through whom God is able to display his power and righteousness ever inseparably linked on with mercy and grace. Why do we have Christ? Because we can't understand God in any other way. We can't get close to God. We can't see God. We can't know anything about God unless it is through Jesus Christ. And this supernatural uh, view of the angels in the Holy of Holies, that's to impress upon us that supernatural power of God. So let's not forget the supernatural. There are elements that can't be known by human senses. They must be revealed by God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.10, But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Folks, that is something we must always keep in mind regarding our salvation. We do not search these things out on our own. We don't find out anything about God on our own. We don't understand salvation on our own. That only comes by revelation from God. His Holy Spirit showing us what these things mean. Now, this, the, the source of all of these is things is outside of us. There is nothing in us that affects the change. We're never in control of any of this. So we take none of redemption's work on ourselves. So every part of worship, as we see it here in the tabernacle, is to exalt the one who is above us. Our heads must bow low. We are never to presume upon God. And so our attitude, our position towards God is always with heads bowed, knees bent, and eyes looking down. That's the way you see these great supernatural angels uh, in their attitude towards God. I remember years ago visiting a Catholic church. That wasn't for services. Uh, I went to this church to see the expensive artwork. I mean, it was a, a place that was, they had some very unusual paintings and and uh, they regularly opened up the church so people could go in to view these paintings. And I told you a little bit about this uh, story a long, long time ago. But I went into the church uh, late in the afternoon not knowing that it was time for them to observe the Mass. So I went into the church to see the artwork, but they'd already begun the Mass. And, and I'm standing in the back of the church when all of a sudden there's a huge thud. There's a good thud, and it, what it, it was the kneelers on the back of the pews going down, and that whole congregation, just like that, straight down to their knees, all in unison, right down to their knees, and I'm standing back, standing up. I wasn't going to bow. I'm not going to bow to that idolatry. I'm left standing at the back of the church, but there's one thing that I could not complain and would not complain about in what I saw, and that is the reverence, the reverence for God. Now, everything else they might have is wrong, but they have reverence to bow the knees before God. You know, we, we sing that, or we have that song, Brother Dalton has sung it several times, Bow the Knee. I think that fairly represents what we should do, if not with our bodies, in our hearts, and in our attitudes, to bow before God. And that we sing, we just sing out 
How great is our God. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. You know, I think there's too much in our churches, too much emphasis that are placed on people, on personalities, on preachers, when really the emphasis should be on the Lord God. Exalt him, not the men. Well, before we move on to some details about these cherubim, I I want to mention a common question about this command to make the cherubs. That doesn't go without controversy. And this is because in Exodus chapter 20, in the second commandment, God said, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In Leviticus 26, the same is repeated. Ye shall not make, or ye shall make no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye set up any image of stone in your mind to bow unto it, for I am the Lord your God. That seems kind of strange. We have a commandment given in Scripture not to make an image of anything that is in heaven above. And here just shortly after that commandment is is given to Israel, just five chapters later, God says, make these images of gold. How is that consistent? Now, obviously, they are a likeness of things that are in heaven. So how does God command this to be done? Well, there is an answer for that, thankfully. Uh, First, we would say that God knows that we're always in danger of worshiping things that are in the imagination, things that we think that are in heaven, things that we haven't seen but we imagine them to be. There's always a danger of turning these things into idols. The context of uh, Exodus 20 and that second commandment is for making idols of worship. And if you read these scriptures in Exodus and in Hebrews very carefully, taking into consideration the whole context of the worship system, then you would note where these cherubim are placed. They are in the holiest of all. They're in the tabernacle where no Israelite was permitted to go. There is no chance that any would see them or have an opportunity to worship them. Some of you may have seen uh, drawings, pictures of Uh, Israel carrying the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And those pictures often show the Ark exposed and people marching behind the Ark. I've I've only seen one accurate representation of that. I can't even remember where I saw it. But it was accurate because it showed Israel's priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant around Jericho and it was covered. You couldn't see the cherubs. You, you, you know it's the Ark of the Covenant because you know the story, but you don't see the cherubs or the mercy seat or any part of that Ark of the Covenant. And this is because the priests always kept that covered. When they moved the tabernacle from one place to another, all of the furnishings on the inside were completely covered. No one was allowed to see what was inside of the tabernacle. Nothing there can be made into an idol because that's what Israel would have done. And so when they took the ark into battle, you couldn't see anything but this large covered object. Later on, we see the, the ark of the covenant was moved to Jerusalem. David moved it. And you remember the story how David danced before the ark? I can assure you 
that that ark was covered. David had no intentions of worshiping it as, a, as an idol, but rather that ark represented the presence of God. Now, I want to show you something interesting about the Ark of the Covenant. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, there's a very good indication here of the danger of disobeying the command to cover the Ark. In this story, the, the Philistines had captured the Ark, and I think most of you are familiar with it, but let's look at just a moment what these Philistines did when they captured the Ark of God. This is 1 Samuel chapter 5, uh, starting in verse number 1. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning... Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of God the God of Israel, about thither. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekron, Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of the God of Israel to us to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go into his own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died were not smitten with the emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Now the Philistines captured the ark. They put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Very, very bad idea. Uh, I want you to get an, a visual image of this in your mind. The temple of Dagon was a massive structure. It was large, large enough to hold thousands of people. Now, we know this from uh, information we gather in the Judges when Samuel was taken into the temple of Dagon, and there he was placed between the two pillars and... Uh, Samson pulled those pillars of that building and brought the whole house down, command performance. He brought the whole house down, and there were thousands of Philistines that were killed. So we know this Temple of Dagon, this is a very, very big structure. Um, and so the Philistines had, had 
were there to mock God and mock Samson, so Samson destroyed it. Now, no doubt, though, that the image of Dagon put into this temple was also a very massive image. And this is what these people were prone to do. They were prone to make, make gigantic images of their god, their gods. As an example, you can look at the Sphinx in, uh, in Egypt, and they say most likely that is a... Um, a, a representation of Pharaoh as the creator God. And that is a massive, massive uh, uh, image that's made. Later, the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar that he uh, built and placed on the plain of Dura was 90 feet tall. So that gives you an idea of how huge that these uh, idols were that they made. These are just massive idols. And they did that because that was an indication of the power of their gods. So the Philistines brought in the ark, and they suppose, well, this ark is some sort of a representation of Israel's God, and they set it down in front of their God, Dagon. Now get the picture in your mind. There's a massive idol image that stands in this temple, and they bring in the ark of the covenant, and it's less than four feet long and 27 inches high. Now, what do you think their purpose in doing this was? They want to show the great disparity between their God and Israel's God. Your God is puny. We've captured your God and put him here standing or sitting in front of our massive image of our great God, Dagon. But what happened? Well, in the night, that huge image fell over in front of the ark as if it was bowing to it. So they come back and they set it up again. That, that in itself is remarkable. You've got to stick your, put your God back up. You've got to prop him up. So they propped up their God, and they come back the next night, and their God has fallen over again in front of the ark. This time his head is cut off, and the palms of his hands are cut off, and all that's left is a stump. Well, that's pretty frightening to these uh, Philistines. And uh, they thought, wow, we've got to do something about this. They thought the ark of God was nothing but an idol. But they didn't understand God. How foolish is it to believe that something, as they did, that you make with your hands could be your God? Remember, we talked about that in, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 10, when, when Jeremiah talked about the foolishness of, of making idols. Well, God just shows this in so many uh, ways, the ignorance that people have to do such things. But then to add to the Philistines' foolishness, they, they thought that if they captured the ark of God, they could harness the power of God. So what did God do? Well, he afflicted them with tumors in their secret parts. I don't need to explain that. Uh, most certainly, though, what they did was they uncovered the ark. They looked at the ark. I have no doubt they opened the ark and they wanted to see what was inside of it. So they saw the ark, they saw the cherubim, all that. And you go on reading in chapter 6 and you see they have a very foolish solution to their tumor problem. They, they, they have this, uh, this strange way of dealing with this because the natural mind doesn't understand God. So what they did was to make images of their tumors to try and appease God. God. I'm not going to give you the visual of that. But if you ever make it, if you ever make it uh, uh, to Israel to see this, I mean, I've, I've said so many times, you just see in the excavations there just the perverse immorality of heathens in, in the excavations of those cities. So I think what this points out to us is 
through this story, we see the real disparity between man and God. The big difference between us and God. This is just a small glimpse of that. On one hand, you have the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what's depicted in all this tabernacle, all this stuff here. So you have the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you have the offering of man's golden tumors. Now, is that depraved or what? And you're going to tell me this is the same guy that's supposed to turn to Christ by his own will? God sees that as golden tumors. That's all that it amounts to. Now, this might give us a little bit of insight into the disappearance of the ark in Jeremiah's time. Uh, What would the Babylonians have done with the ark except what the Philistines did? They would think that they had captured Israel's God. But when we read that story, the stories of, of the Babylonians as they came to destroy Jerusalem, it does tell us that they carried away many of the golden vessels that were in the temple, but it doesn't say a word about the Ark of the Covenant. And that might be the reason that nothing is said about it, because they didn't capture the Ark, because the same thing would have happened if they had. And if you're interested in, in, in details of these stories, uh, you, you go back and you read in First Samuel how long the Philistines kept the Ark. Does anybody know how long it was? Well, I'll tell you how long it was. It was seven months. Is there anything significant in the seven months? Maybe there's not. But don't we know just a little bit too much about typology now to think there's not some kind of significance in the seven months of golden tum- or tumors on, in the secret parts? Yeah, God can wrench it out of you for a long, long time. And, when it's, he, and, and seven months is an indication... You're going to know when he's through. And you're going to wish he was through. And he's done with you at that point, And you got the point. Now, going back then to this problem of making images, Israel was not allowed to see the ark and its cherubs. It's only the high priest who saw them. He saw them one day a year. And he didn't go in to worship those cherubim. Now, secondly, as we look at this, that these images are not of God. They're not of God. They're angels. These aren't given to be worshipped. And I would have to add that decorative art that you would see in a church or someplace, uh, that is not the same as making images for worship. But we do need to understand that any image that we make of God is strictly prohibited. I don't care if it's an artwork. I don't care where it is. I don't care if it's a crucifix. I don't care if it's over there on the cross. Any image that is made of God is a lie because no one can picture God. God is too far above us. And we've talked about this before. Why can't you picture Christ in a crucifix? Because it doesn't show all that God is. All that it can show is that he's man, a dead man on a cross, whereas Christ is the almighty God. So you can't picture, you can't get an accurate picture, you can't get a true picture of Christ in a crucifix. But let's suppose that you go by a Valentine Valentine card, and it has little cupids on it. Well, I don't think you're going to be in serious trouble, and the wrath of God will be on you for buying a a Valentine card like that. Maybe you can make a better choice. But the Bible never describes cupids. We don't see those. And if we put a, a slide on the screen where we have an image, like we might show Moses or Aaron, we've shown priests, we've shown the tabernacle, and we've even shown the Ark of the Covenant, haven't we? 
what we think that that looks like. That's not the same as worshiping. We're, we, we haven't come to worship these pictures that I put up for you. But regarding uh, some and their images, for instance, Roman Catholicism, there is no question that the images they make are for worship. The crucifixes, the statues of saints, the images of Mary, these are articles that are sacred to them. In St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, they rub and kiss the toe of a lifeless statue of Peter. You visit St. Peter's Basilica, you need to be prepared for an immersion into the worst kind of idolatry imaginable. There is, it's the idolatry of Dagon, of Ashtoreth, of Chemosh, of Molech, of the whole bunch. Because all that Rome did was just transform that worship of those gods into the gods they worship today. Angels, saints, the Virgin Mary, the Rosary of Catholicism, those are nothing but idols and golden tumors. Now going back to our text, there isn't a conflict here with cherubims over the mercy seat because they aren't there to be worshipped. They can't be. The ark is not for worship. And the cherubs also that are woven into the veil, those aren't for worship. But no doubt if Israel could see them, they would be because that's what they were prone to do. They were prone to worship idols, just as all people are. I mean, you, you take a look and see how quickly Israel made a golden calf at the foot of Sinai when they thought Moses is not coming back. So they had Aaron make them a golden calf that just miraculously jumped out of the fire, according to him. But, uh, you know, they, they had to make this, this, this golden calf. Now, to give you an example, though, of what Israel was prone to do uh, when they could see an image... Do you, do you remember that serpent of brass that Moses put on a pole? And uh, did you know, probably you do, that Israel kept that serpent of brass? The Bible doesn't say why they did it, but they did. He didn't, God didn't command them to do it, but since they kept it, what did they do with it? They worshipped it. 800 years later, they still had that serpent of brass. Hezekiah put a stop to all that with his reforms. In 2 Kings 18.4, Hezekiah tells us that he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan means brass. In other words, Hezekiah said, that thing is just an old piece of brass. It doesn't have any significance. And so he broke it in pieces. That's the same thing Hezekiah would say for a crucifix. That thing is nothing but a piece of brass. Or today it's probably made of pop metal. That's just a piece of pop metal. Break it in two. Get rid of it. Smash it in pieces. It's no good. Throw it away. Well, moving back to the attitude of worship. There are three aspects of worship that I want to show you in this. Now, we've only got time to cover one, so we'll move quickly here. Uh, as we finish this afternoon, first, we see that the purpose of the cherubim is a vindication of God's holiness. Vindication of God's holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, there is a vision of God's throne room with angelic creatures that constantly proclaim the glory of God by saying, holy, holy, holy. Those angels are the seraphim. That's another order of angels, very closely related to the cherubim. 
And what I want to show you by that is there is no problem for us to understand that angelic beings such as these represent the holiness of God. They speak to God's holiness. In Revelation chapter 4, it says that these creatures never rest. Day and night, forever and ever, always, all time, they speak of God's holiness. But in Scripture, Isaiah 20, or rather Exodus 25, where we see cherubim are made, and Isaiah chapter 6, where it talks about seraphim, these aren't the first places in the Bible that we see these angelic beings. Now, you've got to go back a long, long way to see the beginning of this. So we go all the way back to the beginning immediately after Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden. This is in Genesis, rather, Genesis chapter 3, and beginning in verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east end of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. There are many that mock the story of Adam's fall. Some of them will use it as evidence to say, well, God is a very cruel God. What God did was to throw Adam out of the garden. Is God cruel? I don't think that I need to defend God. God didn't see fit to defend himself, did he? He doesn't defend himself. But whether or not we defend him, God's not going to change. He certainly doesn't. But part of what we do when we preach is we explain And we show why there is no accusation that stands against God. Because God is a holy God. God is always right. Whatever he does is always going to be right. So we can't argue with him. So we would have to ask, did God do right by Adam? Well, we would only need to look at verse 15 of Genesis 3 to see that God, right there in the garden, promised a Savior. He promised that that Christ would come and that would uh, take care of the problem that Adam created. God could have left everything just as it was. He could have left Adam there. He could have doomed Adam and us. But graciously, at his own expense, when there was no reason for him to do it, he provided a Savior. These 41 previous sermons are about about the Savior that he gave. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. But secondly, look at God's reason for sending Adam out of the garden. In, in the 22nd verse, we see the Godhead confers. And the Godhead says, if Adam is left in the garden, he will eat of the tree of life and live forever. Is that bad? Yes, that would be very bad. Now, I don't know how, but somehow God uses the tree of life to preserve eternal life. Is that so? Well, we see it again in Revelation where it says there's the tree of life in heaven, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Somehow God uses that tree of life to preserve eternal life. We also see it in Revelation chapter 2, where one of the great promises that we have from God is that we will be able to eat of the tree of life. That's a promise that's given to us, that the right that Adam lost, God is going to restore. Now, if God hadn't removed Adam from the garden... 
then he would have eaten and he would have lived forever in a sinful state. Some people want to live forever. I'm sure you've talked with people that don't want to die. I want to live forever, they say. And they do everything they can. Pay doctors, whatever they could do to try to live as long as they can. And, you know, I don't want to live forever. I, I don't want to live forever. Not in this state. Not in a sinful state. Not in a world that's filled with heartache and sin and trouble. Do you think that I want my wife to live forever in the, with the sickness that she has? Well, certainly not. No, I don't. I fear for my grandchildren and what life is going to be like for them. Uh, I want Christ to come. And I want Christ to take me and all of them to heaven. But if he decides that's not what he's going to do, then I'm happy to be taken up through the portal of death. I mean, I certainly hope there's no pain and suffering that goes with it. Uh, I hope it's quick. And if God strikes me dead right here in this pulpit, that's perfectly fine with me. I don't want to live forever, not here. But a merciful and gracious God does not leave us to live forever in this awful place. And that's what would have happened to Adam. So Adam was blessed when God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. That kept him from a perpetual life of sorrow. And then how did God make sure that Adam would not get outside of that garden and say, you know, it was pretty easy in there. Um, you know, I didn't have to work too much. Earning a living by sweat is no fun. So I think that I'll go back in and eat, get a bite of the tree of life. But God wouldn't let him do it. And so he put cherubs with flaming swords to guard the way in and to keep him out. We don't want to eat of the tree of life until we've been made holy. We don't want that. We don't want to live forever in this body. We don't want this body until it's been glorified. Then it's okay if we live forever because then we won't be infected with sin any longer. Then we can eat to the full. We can live forever with no pain, no sorrow, no sickness, no heartache, no disappointments. As that song says, all is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. Eat of the tree of life then and all is well. Does God know what he's doing? I think so. Cherubs guard the way to the holiness of God. And cherubs on top of the mercy seat are guardians of God's holiness. And if they could speak, they would say, we have seen it. We have seen what God does. We know that God is right. If you come in here, you understand God is always right. And you must come his way. Because if you come any other way, then you'll be like a bug trapped in amber. You know what I'm saying? What if that is? A bug trapped in amber? Forever, uh, amber? Forever preserved? But to what good? And to what end? I don't want to be preserved that way. So that's one purpose of the cherub cherubs uh, it's time for us to stop here now so I think that I will but uh, studying these things in the Bible is great I think I think it's good to know these things study all of this and all of it comes together for the glory of God blessed be God for Jesus Christ let's pray father we come to you thanking you tonight for the study of your word how we are amazed at the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. There is no explanation for it that we can understand, no adequate one for us that will touch the human mind so that we get understanding of why you did what you did. 
Lord, we're just thankful that you did, that you saved us by your mercy and your grace when we were undeserving. Thank you for Jesus Christ and the salvation of our souls and for the holiness of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.